My name is Fabio Pita, and I'm a professor of respiratory physiotherapy at the State University of Londrina in Brazil. I'm honored to serve as the interviewer for this podcast. The reason for this is because I was unable to attend the last Congress of the American Thoracic Society, which took place in San Francisco last May. And therefore, my aim in this podcast is to interview two prominent professors and researchers from the field of respiratory rehabilitation. I have here with me Dr. Karen Rochester, MD. She's a professor of medicine and medical director of the COPD program at Yale University School of Medicine. And she's a medical director of the pulmonary rehabilitation program, the VA Connecticut Healthcare Center. And she's also the current chair of the American Thoracic Society Assembly on pulmonary rehabilitation. And we also have with us Dr. Sally Singh. She's a physiotherapist and PhD and a professor of pulmonary and cardiac rehabilitation. She's based at the Center of Exercise and Rehabilitation Sciences and uh, University Hospitals of Leicester in the United Kingdom. So the objective of this podcast is to discuss the most important points involving pulmonary rehabilitation presented at the conference for members who did not attend the Congress and to provide a summary for those who did attend. As you know, the Congress involves a number of sessions such as symposia or presentations, poster discussions and thematic poster discussions. And as researchers on the field, they were attentive to what was going on and will be very kind to respond to a few questions about these highlights of the Congress. Professor Singh, could you please start by giving us an overview of the year in review as far as rehabilitation is concerned? Uh, thank you, Fabio. Um, I was very privileged to be able to present the year uh, in review on behalf of the pulmonary rehabilitation group. Um, so I'll just take people through the four papers that I chose to present this year as the highlights of uh, efforts of researchers in pulmonary rehabilitation to move the field forward. I think it's fairly well recognized now that actually we don't need further randomized controlled trials to prove the benefits of, of pulmonary rehabilitation, and that was highlighted in, in the Cochrane Review. But we do need further research in terms of identifying the uh, delivery of rehabilitation, what might be its ideal length, its, its location, and, and perhaps the degree of supervision that's required and, and the precise details around the training program. So with that in mind, I'm going to present four different papers, but, but in part cover some of these aspects. The first paper was published in 2014 by uh, Neil Greening, who was the lead author um, in the British Medical Journal, which looked at an early intervention during an, an exacerbation of COPD, and it was a large randomized controlled trial that recruited nearly 400 patients at the time they were admitted into hospital. And the underlying hypothesis was that an intervention that addressed the physical decline that we've observed during a hospital stay, if we could reverse that or reduce the risk of, of a physical decline, we would prevent readmission and actually accelerate recovery um, in the post-discharge period. 
So it was quite a complex trial with um, a, a lot of detail around the training intervention that involved voluntary and involuntary training in terms of neuromuscular stimulation, strength training, and uh, aerobic training. And this was compared against best um, inpatient care and follow-up care. So what was interesting that the length of stay was actually quite short and the number of sessions that were being provided by the therapy team were quite limited because of not only the research process uh, prior to enrolment but also the, the reduced length of stay. But overall, the group found that there was no significant difference in hospital readmissions with the early rehabilitation intervention compared to usual care. And perhaps what was interesting that hasn't been previously reported was there was an observed recovery in both the usual care group and the early rehabilitation group, which is contrary to previous findings. One of the interesting findings was that at 12 months, there was a difference in survival. And this, uh, the survival curve separated at around six months. So it's, it's difficult to believe that that was associated with the intervention. But it, it was a challenging finding that um, the authors struggled to explain. So at the moment, the, su the suggestion is that there is no advantage to offering early rehabilitation in this group. And in fact, there may be some disadvantage in terms of survival. The second paper looked at a stable COPD population, but very specifically looked at uh, those with sarcopenia, which is uh, an age-related muscle loss, which is reflected in both a loss of muscle mass and function. And most studies involving COPD and rehabilitation interventions have just focused on on one of those components. So this was a study where the group in London um, looked at that. And the study was reported in Thorax in 2015, and the lead author was Sarah Jones. And they wanted to look at sarcopenia and COPD, its prevalence, its clinical correlates, and the response to rehabilitation. And they had a large cohort that they, they looked at retrospectively to try and identify a sarcopenic group, and they are a group that takes a lot of complex measurements in their patients um, beyond what most rehabilitation centers take. And they found in their cohort of 622 patients that uh, the prevalence of sarcopenia was 14.5%. Was but interestingly, the group didn't differ by gender, smoking, comorbidities, but it did, perhaps not surprisingly, increase with age and gold stage. They then went on to compare a, a non-sarcopenic group that, that was uh, matched as well as they could to the uh, sarcopenic group in terms of their response to rehabilitation and found that both groups improved in their walking performance as measured by the incremental shuttle walking test and their quadriceps strength. And in fact, the proportion, um, just under 30%, no longer met the criteria for sarcopenia following pulmonary rehabilitation. So this was the first study to report sarcopenia in COPD using standardized criteria. Um, and actually they found that these patients responded well to rehabilitation. The next study is uh, the study by uh, T. 
Terry Trooster's group that was reported um, in the European Respiratory Journal in 2015 with the lead author of Jimeno Santos. And this described the uh, development and validation of the proactive um, measurements looking at physical activity in patients with COPD. So this was a longer-awaited um, publication. There's been a lot of um, abstract activity uh, around this um, project that's been funded by um, a, a European consortium. So the background to this study is that obviously physical activity is a key factor in determining um, health status. And low levels of physical activity in COPD are associated with, with poor prognosis. And there's been a, a, a lot of research around measuring physical activity and, and the previous ATSs and this ATS, there, was a, there were a lot of abstract presentations reporting physical activity. But of course, although you, you're able to quantify physical activity, you, you don't report on the experience. So patients may do exactly the same number of steps, but you have no feel as to whether one patient found it difficult and one patient found it hard. So the aim of this study um, was to develop a patient-centered outcome measure uh, that followed best practice as defined by the FDA so that it would be a recognized outcome for clinical trials. So the team spent a lot of time talking to patients and experts in the field of um, rehabilitation and physical activity to try and understand what type of questions would be relevant to try and look at the impact of physical activity on an individual. And they broadly came up with three categories, the amount of physical activity, the symptoms experienced during physical activity, and the need for physical adaptions. So the first two are perhaps more obvious, but the physical adaptions were how often do you have to take a break during your physical activities and, and how often do you slow down? So this was a, a multi-center study where they looked to validate this uh, suite of questionnaire uh, questions that they'd developed. And of course, they didn't only ask patients the question um, in a repeated fashion, but they took a number of other measures as well um, that looked at patient demographics uh, and, their, and their characteristics. And they combined this with activity monitor data, so they had objective measures of physical activity too. And they went through a rather complex um, statistical uh, evaluation of the data that they had to try and reduce the number of items. And this was done not only statistically, but also they went back to patients and asked expert uh, clinicians again. And they developed two questionnaires. One was the daily physical activity questionnaire and one was a clinical uh, proactive questionnaire. And th th they had slightly different uh, numbers of questionnaires, but there was a, a big reduction in the overall number of questionnaires. And the um, number of questionnaires around the uh, amount of activity were reduced and actually included two variables from the activity monitor data. So it was in terms of steps and vector magnitude units, which defines broadly the intensity of the activity. So they had two factors. The um, amount of activity and the difficulty associated with that. And in the daily questionnaire, there were slightly fewer um, questions that would be asked in terms of the difficulty compared to the clinical questionnaire. 
So overall, this was a very novel um, method of developing um, an outcome measure that was, of course, patient-centered, and physical activity in these patients appears to have two important domains in terms of the amount of activity and the difficulty associated with it. Going forwards, we would hope that this questionnaire would allow us to evaluate a variety of interventions that patients participate in, and of course that would not only be rehabilitation, but also pharmaceutical interventions, to try and understand how these interventions work. So do they improve uh, the amount of activity, or do they make a standard uh, volume of activity less challenging for the individual? And this group, I'm sure, will go on to look at uh, the value of this questionnaire and, and activity monitor combined in, in a, a wider range of patients and to assess its responsiveness and, of course, develop uh, an MCID. The final quest, um, paper that I presented was uh, a paper, um, the lead author was Martin Spruis looking at the differential responses to pulmonary rehabilitation, uh, specifically in COPD, looking at multidimensional profiling. And this was published in the European Respiratory Journal uh, back in 2015. The assumptions behind this paper were that we, we know that rehabilitation is effective, and there's a large range of outcome measures that um, centres collect, largely trying to reflect the complex nature of the intervention. On occasion, there's, there can be more than one test used in one category, and a, a good example of this would be um, an exercise test. So some centers may not only collect the field-based test, for example, the six-minute walking test, but they may also collect laboratory-based exercise tests, perhaps a cycling-based test and, and a constant work rate test. This center collected... Uh, a, a number of outcome measures, but very specifically in this paper, looked at those variables that they, there was a known uh, minimum clinically important difference identified. So they could do uh, a responder analysis and identify those that had had a good response uh, compared to those that hadn't had a response. So they very specifically looked at the MRC, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Score, the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire and the two exercise tests were the six-minute walking test and the constant work rate test. And the group did some very complex modeling and developed heat maps and um, did some cluster analysis and identified clusters of, of patients that they had uh, categorized as having a very good response to rehabilitation, a good response, a moderate or a poor response. And there was very much a skew towards patients responding in rehabilitation, and just 10% of patients were categorized as poor responders. And what was interesting was looking at these heat maps, and I would recommend that you all get, refer back to the paper, because obviously over a podcast, it's very difficult to convey uh, um, uh, a graphic. But it's interesting that if we use just one outcome measure alone, often we'll miss a number of patients that, that have otherwise had a response to rehabilitation, but we may not have picked it up with just a, a, a collecting one or two variables. So it really did highlight how important it is to collect a suite, a suite of outcome measures to try and identify people that have responded to rehabilitation. 
The group then went on to try and identify what characteristics were associated with those that had a very successful response to rehabilitation. And by and large, it was those with a greater symptom burden, so those with high levels of breathlessness, those that had had more hospital admissions in the last 12 months, those with a lower exercise performance, those with more um, symptoms of anxiety and depression. And I guess the flip side of that is then trying to identify the people that don't respond. So you might be able to prospectively identify those patients as they entered the program. But in reality, uh, as other groups have reported, it was very difficult to identify those at the beginning of rehabilitation. There was no difference in, um, or there was a, a, not an indicative difference in six-minute walking tests or MRC scores that would make you suspicious at, at baseline that these patients weren't going to respond to rehabilitation. And there was no difference between the groups in terms of their age, their baseline FEV1, gender, their peak um, oxygen consumption as percentage predicted, or their constant work rate test. So it really does show that rehabilitation is a complex intervention and does require um, a repertoire of outcome measures to identify the gains. And we have to be careful that we don't essentially put all our eggs in one basket with, with one measure and that non-responders remain difficult to um, identify prospectively. So I guess from all of those papers, we're beginning to look at trying to separate out those patients that do and don't respond to conventional pulmonary rehabilitation and move towards a more personalized approach of medicine, which we've seen in very many other areas that have been presented across the ATS. Thank you very much, Professor Singh, for the overview. Thank you. And now, uh, Professor Rochester, could you please uh, provide us an overview of the uh, symposia or presentations and any uh, sessions that you want to uh, highlight from the program? And perhaps also if you want to highlight some specific posters or studies from those sessions that you want, could you please uh, uh, provide us that overview? Uh, yes, uh, thank you, Fabio. Um, first, it's a pleasure and an honor to have a chance to participate in this podcast. Um, there were many exciting sessions uh, pertaining to pulmonary rehabilitation at the 2016 ATS International Conference. Um, there were two main symposia uh, fostered by the Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly. There was also a mini-symposium uh, with oral presentations. There was one poster discussion session and three thematic poster sessions, as well as a workshop and a Meet the Professor session. Uh, the Meet the Professor session was, the topic was delivering effective pulmonary rehabilitation with minimal resources, um, conducted by Jenny Allison from Sydney, Australia, uh, and this uh, received uh, outstanding reviews. Uh, we will go through uh, these sessions one by one uh, to highlight the key things um, contained within them. Uh, and Sally and I have uh, selected uh, some abstracts to comment on uh, specifically. Uh, it's clear that there are many, many outstanding studies, and uh, the selection is really 
necessitated by virtue of time limitations. It's clearly not possible to highlight all of the many outstanding um, posters and uh, sessions that were presented at the conference, but we'll try to highlight some that illustrate uh, relevant areas in the field. So the first of the two scientific symposia that was presented at ATS 2016 was entitled, A Report Card on Education During Pulmonary Rehabilitation, How Are We Doing? And the objectives of this session were to both outline the current approaches to patient education in pulmonary rehabilitation and note the evidence illustrating the effects of patient education on outcomes such as patient knowledge, quality of life, self-efficacy, and healthcare utilization, but also to describe the challenges with regard to eliciting health behavior change and how education and learning new information is only one component of behavior change and to stimulate discussion of future directions uh, for education in pulmonary rehabilitation. That session um, had several topics contained within it. It was chaired by uh, Sue LaRoe, uh, Dr. Richard Zawalik, Dr. Linda Nietzsche, and uh, Dr. Felicity Blackstock. Uh, and there were um, six talks within that symposium. One uh, illustrated the historical approach to education in pulmonary rehabilitation for people with COPD. A second uh, was a patient perspective on education in pulmonary rehabilitation. The third topic was current educational models in pulmonary re rehabilitation, and we'll come back to this uh, in, in a moment. Um, the fourth topic was health literacy uh, and how to move towards patient-tailored education. The fifth topic was challenges of, cha of changing behavior uh, and making note that education was really only one component of that. Uh, and the final session um, by Dr. Nietzsche was where do we need to go next in regard to education in pulmonary rehabilitation. And again, time precludes detailed discussion of each of the sessions, um, but when we look at education within pulmonary rehabilitation as a whole, there are several key issues to mention. One is, is education in pulmonary rehabilitation efficacious and does it add value to the exercise training components. Um, this is a multifaceted issue, has to do with knowledge and skill acquisition, as well as patient experiences, health beliefs, health behaviors, and health outcomes. If we look at the literature in regards to the education components of pulmonary rehabilitation, existing literature would suggest that patient's knowledge itself improves and that patients appreciate having an educational component. They appreciate the ability for acquisition of skills and knowledge, and they have a strong sense of a learning process. It has been expressed that they experience a, quote, new way of life uh, to assume different behaviors and uh, assist with adjustment to uh, their chronic respiratory condition. We really don't have literature or uh, solid data to tell us what the impact of education is on patients' health beliefs or health behavior per se. If we look at the impact of uh, patient education in pulmonary rehabilitation on health outcomes, 
Uh, in fact, the evaluation of this has been fairly limited. Uh, there are a couple of randomized controlled trials that have looked at the impact of education in rehabilitation on health outcomes. Um, and thus far, uh, in both randomized controlled trials where it has been looked, uh, there really has not been significant difference demonstrated in the um, health outcomes of pulmonary rehabilitation when the education uh, component per se is evaluated uh, as compared to pulmonary rehabilitation as a whole. Um, there are several systematic reviews on the issue of education uh, compared to usual care as well. Uh, and, um, you know, this is another area, um, but a bit of a different focus than the issue of uh, pulmonary rehabilitation and education uh, versus pulmonary rehabilitation that is um, studied just in the form of exercise training. Uh, so it's uh, a, an area that needs a lot more work. Uh, again, the literature overall suggests that educational activities that have a focus on self-management um, might have an effect on healthcare use and quality of life compared to usual care, but the, the educational component um, does not have any clear convincing effect thus far on health outcomes when examined specifically as a component of pulmonary rehabilitation. And we really have no literature for chronic lung diseases other than uh, COPD in regards to um, the impact of the educational component. One of the important uh, things raised in this session, uh, uh, the Scientific Symposium on Education in Pulmonary Rehabilitation, is that we really aren't certain whether we have yet designed the correct educational models or measured the correct outcomes uh, and, um, and or necessarily uh, addressed adequately cultural diverse patient groups uh, with differing health beliefs, um, health literacy, uh, and it's very clear that um, patients learn um, very differently. Uh, we all have different ways that we learn, and indeed, um, not only patient choice uh, and health literacy affects this, um, but some patients um, may be affected by other issues in regards to um, uh, their uh, emotional state, for example, whether there's presence of anxiety, depression, and some patients um, may have better um, ability to become self-managers uh, than others. So this is uh, indeed a complex uh, issue. This symposium was very, very well received. It stimulated a lot of discussion. Uh, and I think going forward, we, we collectively, as a field of uh, pulmonary rehabilitation providers, have a lot of work to do um, in this regard. So we look forward to much more uh, coming uh, to foster um, the benefits of uh, patient education uh, going forward. Um, the second scientific symposium that was presented at the ATS 2016 meeting um, was entitled, One Step at a Time, Has Physical Activity Delivered as an Outcome in Clinical Trials? Uh, this session was chaired by uh, Dr. Sally Singh and Dr. Marilyn uh, Moy from Boston, Massachusetts. 
Um, the key topics included um, had to do with a history of physical activity measurement in COPD, um, whether physical activity is a beneficial um, process, uh, whether it keeps us alive. Um, a third topic was whether physical activity uh, keeps patients with COPD happy. It was a, a patient-centered perspective. Uh, the fourth topic within this symposium was whether physical activity should be an outcome for large cl clinical trials. And uh, a subsequent topic was enhancing physical activity with pulmonary rehabilitation. And the last was whether technology can be used to improve physical activity for individuals with COPD. Um, Sally, perhaps as the chair of, of that session, would you like to make a few uh, comments? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd be happy to. It was um, a very topical uh, debate, as we've already talked. Physical activity is very high on everybody's agenda to try and perhaps firstly understand and, and then improve. So um, Professor Casabiori gave um, a, a short but very enlightening uh, overview of the history of physical activity measurement and, and suggested that actually um, you know, it extends much further back than, than we all like to think it is. We come to the conference now and, and look at physical activity monitoring, but actually it's been you know, vexing people for an awfully long time. The second speaker was uh, Professor Myers, who is not uh, from a background of respiratory, but has an interest in uh, cardiovascular health in the general population and those with pre-existing cardiovascular disease. So hence the title around um, does physical activity keep us alive? And I would suggest that all of us that are interested in uh, physical activity and its wider gains uh, refer to his work. He gave a, a very broad overview and uh, a very thoughtful and, um, consideration of the literature that extended way beyond respiratory disease and the value of physical activity. Then we had Professor Trusters who talked about physical activity and, and does it keep people happier and reflecting largely on the work that he's done to date around the uh, proactive consortium and all the papers that have, have been um, uh, ad addressing that, that massive piece of uh, collaborative work across Europe. The next talk was by um, Dr. Alan Hamilton, and, and it was qu quite interesting for a rehabilitation group to be listening to a representative from the pharmaceutical company and um, Alan Hamilton uh, works for a pharmaceutical company and is a clinical lead within that and uh, leads many programs around the evaluation of bronchodilators, but has an interest in physical activity both, both personally and on behalf of the company that he works for. And he raised some of the challenges around measuring physical activity as an endpoint in um, clinical trials, suggesting that there was an interest within industry to look at um, physical activity as an outcome, but actually it's, there are a number of challenges that that brings. But potentially, uh, perhaps most obvious, is the significant investment that is required to provide all participants with monitoring equipment and then, of course, the software to do the analysis and the increased complexity that that requires in terms of study setup so that the trial preparation and patient training 
is, is much more complicated than doing a a single visit where a number of outcome measures are collected by um, the trials lead within any one centre. There was then some interesting debate around how physical activity data is presented and what might be uh, a primary or a secondary endpoint. And he presented um, a very interesting paper where they reviewed all the different ways that physical activity might be reported. And clearly, you know, the most obvious one is steps, but actually the software provided these days with uh, these activity monitors allows you to, to represent the data in many different ways. So that was very interesting um, and quite enlightening for those of us that are involved in rehab to, to understand that the pharmaceutical industry are also uh, very interested in that as, as an area too. And there are some initiatives that are um, going on to try and allow physical activity to fit into this, this regulatory framework. And as I've mentioned previously, the uh, proactive tool has been developed with uh, regulatory approval processes in mind. And also there's the um, CBQC initiative, which is also considering physical activity as, as a, a legitimate endpoint for trial. The next talk was uh, delivered by uh, Dr. Roger Goldstein, and the title of his talk was Enhancing Physical Activity with Rehabilitation. And perhaps not surprisingly, this was quite a challenging talk because the data suggests so far that rehabilitation isn't terribly effective at improving um, physical activity in the way that it's currently reported. And so there was some uh, debate and, and thoughts around how rehabilitation has a challenge around um, providing an exercise stimulus and then a physical activity intervention and how that might be quite complicated within the context of a, a short intervention, which is, is frequently offered over a six-week period and to um, help the patients not only improve their exercise capacity, which of course is one aspect of physical activity, but also to then improve their background physical activity as well, which may be expressed in terms of their, their, their uh, light physical activity. Um, so that there weren't any firm conclusions drawn because obviously that, that is a million dollar question essentially, how, how, how do we do both? Um, but it was uh, a thoughtful talk in really trying to identify that it, pulmonary rehabilitation is already a complex intervention. And by imposing physical activity targets on top of that, we're making it even more complicated. The final talk by uh, Helene Demia from uh, Leuven in Belgium looked at whether um, we could perhaps use technology to improve physical activity um, in patients with COPD. And we're all completely aware that the market is now flooded with uh, devices to track and monitor our own personal activity and whether patients with COPD may find these useful. And a, a lot of anxieties were shared around the relative sensitivity of these devices, how the data was represented to patients and whether they'd actually be effective for patients with COPD. She then went on to 
look at some of the data where these devices have been trialled in patients with COPD, with actually at the moment uh, not an overwhelming um, impact. So I think that the efforts of, of people in, interested in digital health really require um, a collaboration between those that are experts in aspects like gaming, for example, and understanding what patients uh, with respiratory disease would, would really engage with because, of course, most software developers are, are so much younger than patients that have respiratory disease and perhaps get um, lose sight of, of, of what patients with COPD are um, perhaps not just capable of engaging with, but actually prepared to engage with. And, and how do we identify a group of patients that are competent at using digital devices? And how might uh, we best develop packages to help patients not only improve their physical activity, but actually sustain physical activity after a rehabilitation intervention? So, so overall, I think the session w was was not only well attended but very thought-provoking and, and gives those of us that are interested in research many years of, of activity, I think. But it, but it was fascinating to pull everybody together from, from many different areas, um, including cardiology, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, and an interest in digital health to try and address um, some of the challenges in this area. Great. Thank you, Sally. Um, Another session that uh, was very well received at the meeting this past year was a midday workshop. Uh, this was uh, chaired by uh, Anne Holland and Dr. Uh, Cahallan from Miami, Florida. Uh, Dr. Holland is from Melbourne, Australia. And this was entitled Pulmonary Rehabilitation for Interstitial Lung Disease, Optimizing the Model. Uh, the purpose of this session was to really provide a state-of-the-art update regarding the science underlying the role of pulmonary rehabilitation for patients with interstitial lung disease, as well as to provide practical advice um, for practitioners in regards to prescribing effective exercise training for people with interstitial lung disease and to gain new strategies for comprehensive rehabilitation in interstitial lung disease. Uh, there were several topics included in this session. Um, again, the first uh, was presented by Dr. Ann Holland uh, regarding the state of the evidence, uh, which is now very robust. There are many randomized controlled trials uh, supporting the role of pulmonary rehabilitation for individuals with interstitial lung disease. Uh, there is now substantial evidence that there exists uh, peripheral muscle dysfunction in interstitial lung disease that as for COPD likely uh, supports a scientific rationale for why exercise training has potential uh, to improve exercise capacity uh, and help reduce symptoms and improve quality of life. Uh, as for COPD, it is possible to train the uh, peripheral muscles and this in turn leads to uh, reductions in ventilatory demand for uh, given levels of exercise. Uh, there are some challenges in particular in regards to providing pulmonary rehabilitation for patients with interstitial lung disease, most notable amongst which 
uh, is the tendency of these patients to have very severe oxygen desaturation during exercise, and maintaining adequate oxygen saturation indeed can be a particular challenge for them. Having said that, even those with very severe advanced interstitial lung disease uh, preparing for lung transplantation uh, can achieve gains uh, in pulmonary rehabilitation, and uh, one key area that is important for future research is whether uh, pre-transplantation pulmonary rehabilitation indeed has the potential to improve post-transplantation outcomes. This, however, is a very uh, tricky thing to assess because pulmonary rehabilitation prior to transplantation is the current standard of care. Uh, there are questions still regarding the non-exercise training components of pulmonary rehabilitation in interstitial lung disease, and this was uh, the topic of discussion um, by Dr. Swigris uh, in in the uh, session, the midday session, the workshop on pulmonary rehab for interstitial lung disease. And there was a second uh, discussion also surrounding non-exercise training components that uh, pertain to capturing the important changes in pulmonary rehabilitation with regards to what outcome measures uh, should be used. And this is important because it's not a given that the same exact set of patient assessment and outcomes measures used for patients with COPD uh, can and should be used for uh, patients with non-COPD respiratory disorders. Again, that session was very well received, and uh, this is an area where a tremendous amount of research uh, is emerging, and uh, we'll be hopefully learning more about what areas, uh, where do we need to uh, adjust the content and uh, outcome measures of pulmonary rehabilitation for patients with interstitial lung disease as compared to those with COPD. Um, the, the next session I'd like to highlight is the mini-symposium that was held uh, for pulmonary rehabilitation, and that was on the topic of clinical trials and novel interventions in pulmonary rehabilitation. Uh, this was a session uh, that highlighted several abstracts, uh, and um, many of which were randomized controlled trials. And I'd like to highlight just a few of those um, in the interest of time. Um, a couple of them were highlighted as um, particularly notable abstracts um, in the ATS International Conference as a whole. Um, these two are the first of them. It was by uh, Katrina Curtis and uh, her group um, from the UK. And this was a, a work entitled Angiotensin Converting Enzyme Inhibition as an Adjunct to Pulmonary Rehab, a Randomized Controlled Trial. The purpose of this study was to assess whether uh, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibition therapy uh, could potentially augment the benefits of pulmonary rehabilitation. Uh, the basis for that study was that prior epidemiologic studies had suggested that ACE inhibition therapy was associated with improvements in quadriceps strength and endurance capacity in COPD. 
And yet the role of pulmonary rehabilitation in combination with ACE inhibitor therapy was as yet unknown. So these investigators performed a randomized uh, double-blind placebo-controlled parallel group trial of enalapril 10 milligrams daily versus placebo in patients with COPD. They assessed as primary outcome measurement a change in peak power from baseline based on incremental cycle ergometry, and they had several secondary outcomes. Notably, the ACE inhibition therapy was shown to be effective as demonstrated by a significant reduction in systolic blood pressure, yet the peak power achieved in incremental cycle ergometry increased in both groups following pulmonary rehabilitation, the intervention group and the control, but notably the change in peak power was much greater in the placebo group as compared to the ACE inhibition group. Likewise, physical activity level rose in the placebo group but was reduced in the ACE inhibition group and there were no significant differences between groups in quadriceps strength or health-related quality of life. The conclusions from this trial were that the use of ACE inhibition uh, therapy, in this case enalapril, together in combination with pulmonary rehabilitation, actually appeared to blunt the responses or outcomes of exercise training and was associated with reduced physical activity. And therefore, disappointingly, it did not appear that ACE inhibition therapy has an important adjunctive role uh, together with pulmonary rehab in COPD patients who don't otherwise qualify for it on basis of having heart failure. The second uh, highlighted abstract from that session was uh, from Isabel Vivotstev and her colleagues uh, in Quebec, Canada. And this study was the cardiometabolic effect benefit of exercise training in obese patients with obstructive sleep apnea, respective impact of non-invasive ventilation and respiratory muscle training in a randomized controlled trial. The rationale for this study is that uh, both obesity and obstructive sleep apnea are interconnected conditions that can lead to reduced exercise tolerance and increased cardiovascular risk. So the investigators were interested in studying the effect of different exercise training modalities on exercise capacity and various cardiometabolic parameters in obese individuals with obstructive sleep apnea who were already treated with CPAP therapy. They had 53 patients who were randomly assigned to a three-month exercise training program. There was exercise training versus exercise training supported by non-invasive ventilation versus exercise training supported by respiratory muscle training. The exercise training in the group of patients as a whole improved exercise capacity, both in terms of six-minute walk and uh, VO2 peak, and also helped to reduce systolic blood pressure and low to high-density lipoprotein ratios, as well as CRP levels as compared to the controls. The groups that exercise had, had exercise training in conjunction with non-invasive ventilation or respiratory muscle training had greater improvements in their 
peak VO2 compared to those with exercise training alone. And those who had non-invasive ventilation with exercise training also had significantly reduced systolic blood pressure as well. So these results uh, showed for the first time an improvement in cardiometabolic parameters after exercise training in patients with uh, obesity and obstructive sleep apnea who were already treated with CPAP and showed that ventilatory support and respiratory muscle training are efficient adjunctive tools uh, to um, foster the effects of exercise training in those individuals. A third very important uh, trial from that uh, session was uh, the study entitled Low-Cost Home-Based Pulmonary Rehabilitation for COPD, a Randomized Controlled Equivalence Trial. And this is from Dr. Anne Holland uh, in Melbourne, Australia, and her team. Uh, this was a, a randomized controlled equivalence trial uh, that included assessor blinding and 12 months of follow-up in uh, individuals with stable COPD. So uh, participants received eight weeks of outpatient pulmonary rehabilitation, either via a standard outpatient center-based model or a home-based pulmonary rehab model, which consisted of a home visit and seven once-weekly telephone calls using motivational interviewing approach. There were no uh, key differences between um, the clinical outcomes at any of the time points, and indeed, uh, it appeared from the study that the uh, low-cost home-based pulmonary rehabilitation was able to deliver uh, at least equivalent uh, short-term clinical outcomes uh, in regards to six-minute walk test, uh, dyspnea, and quality of life uh, to a um, uh, you know traditional center-based model. Um, and the gains were not maintained, however, at 12 months in either model. Uh, the conclusion of the investigators, uh, which I felt was important, is that um, this type of a model might be considered for individuals who cannot otherwise access uh, center-based programs. Um, Sally, I don't know if you'd like to, to weigh in on that um, that that thought. Or... No, I, I, I would have picked that abstract out as being a highlight in a way because it reflects what the Cochrane Review had, had previously said that we need to look at different ways of delivering rehabilitation now and not just focus on um, the, the refining the supervised package. So I think it's, it's a really valuable contribution to the literature because we know that uh, a number of patients decline the offer and and then drop out of rehabilitation. So it's really important that we find different ways of of hopefully achieving the same end results. Agree. Um, and this is clearly not suitable uh, for all individuals, but it, it, it's, uh, I think, an important work uh, that needs uh, yeah. further consideration. Um, there were uh, some additional um, very important um, trials from that session. Um, one was uh, in regards to uh, partitioning exercise uh, in regards to exercise workload and dyspnea, both during upper and lower extremity 
limb muscle endurance exercises in, in individuals with COPD versus healthy controls. And this was uh, from Andre Nyberg um, uh, and uh, Francois Maltese group in, in Quebec. Um, this was a, an interesting study where um, the the subjects underwent a training program that was aimed at improving limb muscle endurance using elastic bands uh, providing a range of resistances and either training one limb, single limb training, or two limb training uh, at each time. Uh, And they were able to demonstrate in this study, uh, it was a fairly small study, but they were able to demonstrate that amongst individuals with COPD, localized exercise workloads were higher when individuals performed the exercise using single limb versus double limb. So they were able to achieve higher exercise workloads, and yet, despite the higher exercise workloads, the dyspnea ratings for all the exercises were lower during single limb resistance training as compared to double limb. So the conclusion from that study was that partitioning the exercise uh, using a single limb allowed uh, higher workloads but lower dyspnea, uh, and um, that has implications for um, the uh, ultimate uh, level of training achievable uh, by individuals. Another uh, important uh, work from that uh, session, uh, the oral uh, mini-symposium, oral presentation mini-symposium, uh, is that uh, one-legged cycling which has been uh, is another way of, of parti- partitioning exercise in effort to um, foster the training intensity while limiting dyspnea and ventilatory limitation, uh, which has been used successfully amongst individuals with COPD. Uh, the, the investigators in, in the, the most recent um, study presented at ATS 2016 um, uh, Tom Riley and colleagues uh, from Toronto were able to demonstrate that this one-legged cycling method was also beneficial amongst individuals with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, uh, and um, that uh, one-legged cycling at the same muscle-specific power uh, compared to two-legged cycling enabled patients with IPF to achieve double the work rate uh, in an exercise uh, training session. So this is a promising uh, method for uh, patients with with IPF as well. Um, So those are some of the uh, abstracts that were highlighted in the mini-symposium session. I'd like to um, briefly touch as well on a a couple of the other sessions, um, and we clearly will not be able to uh, discuss all the interesting abstracts in the interest of time. But uh, in the poster discussion session, there were several topics addressed. Uh, This session was entitled Highlights and Advances in Pulmonary Rehabilitation. Uh, The session focused on many issues, including skeletal muscle dysfunction, mechanisms of exercise limitation, aspects of dyspnea in various conditions, um, clinical outcomes, comorbidities, physical activity, uh, and frailty, amongst others. Um, So within this group, uh, there are a couple that I would like to um, mention um, briefly the, to, to highlight. One was um, from uh, Dr. Mick Steiner and colleagues uh, in Leicester, UK. Uh, this was 
the clinical outcomes of pulmonary rehabilitation results for the UK National COPD Audit. Uh, and um, this, I think, is a, a very important um, study presented at this meeting um, because uh, despite the very robust evidence demonstrating in the context of clinical trials that pulmonary rehab improves multiple patient outcomes. Uh, this audit, uh, the National COPD audit in the UK, attempted to assess the degree to which the same benefits are achieved in routine clinical practice uh, in routine pulmonary rehabilitation programs. Uh, and so, uh, it, this study did demonstrate uh, that uh, in this large nationwide audit that clinically and statistically significant improvements in exercise performance and health status are indeed uh, achieved by the majority uh, of uh, programs uh, and, and patients in routine clinical practice and not just in the context of um, controlled clinical uh, trials. Um, an important finding of this audit, however, was that a significant number of patients assessed for pulmonary rehab did not complete treatment. And so this is a, an area, uh, the uh, focus on enhancing patient uptake and completion of pulmonary rehab is an important area uh, for further uh, study and um, to be addressed. Um, and uh, another uh, important abstract from that session uh, is the effect of supplemental oxygen on exercises responses in patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis from Leona Dalman um, from uh, Anne Holland's group in Melbourne, Australia. Um, we certainly know that oxygen is a critical component of the treatment for patients with interstitial lung disease and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in particular um, tend to have very high oxygen requirements and uh, it still needed to be assessed as to whether exercise performance was indeed impacted um, by the use of supplemental oxygen. This was a small study. Um, it was 11 patients with IPF, uh, and they received either supplemental oxygen or compressed air uh, and underwent constant cycle endurance exercise testing uh, at 85% of peak work rate from an initial uh, uh, peak uh, incremental cardiopulmonary exercise test performed a week before. Uh, and this study did demonstrate that supplemental oxygen significantly improved exercise endurance time in these individuals, uh, as well as improved baseline um, arterial uh, pulse oxygen saturation uh, and uh, the, the nadir uh, oxygen saturation during exercise with a trend for reduced shortness of breath at the end of exercise, um, but without any change in fatigue. But I think this um, um, speaks to the importance of achieving adequate um, oxygenation or to at least the best of our ability uh, for these patients. Um, the, the last uh, article, just to mention from that session, in the interest of time, uh, was from uh, Dr. Will Mann and colleagues uh, in the UK uh, entitled Physical Frailty and Pulmonary Rehabilitation in COPD. Uh, and uh, if frailty is defined as a multi-system syndrome characterized by vulnerability to adverse outcomes from various uh, stressor events, uh, the question is whether uh, frailty impacts uh, 
uh, frailty, whether frailty is common and does it impact outcomes of pulmonary rehabilitation. Uh, so in this study uh, by Dr. Mann and colleagues, uh, they found that uh, frailty was present in approximately a quarter of patients with COPD who were referred for pulmonary rehabilitation, um, but that uh, the, the patients uh, with frailty had often had quadriceps weakness and or uh, sarcopenia. Um, they found that the presence of frailty uh, did impact the uh, uptake and completion of uh, pulmonary rehabilitation, um, and yet uh, the, the frailty patients um, achieved uh, substantial gains in exercise, performance, physical activity levels, health status, and dyspnea scores uh, following pulmonary rehabilitation, uh, supporting the inclusion of these individuals uh, within pulmonary rehabilitation programs. Um, again, uh, there are, are many other uh, wonderful uh, abstracts that were also included in the uh, thematic poster sessions, of which there were three at the ATS International Meeting. Um, there, uh, for perhaps in the in the interest of time, I'll just mention the the titles of these uh, sessions. Um, and the the first of the thematic poster sessions was on the art and science of rehabilitation, novel treatments and outcomes in pulmonary rehabilitation. Um, this session addressed several issues. There was a focus on neuromuscular electrical stimulation. Um, there was um, some information about telerehabilitation and activity monitoring. Um, there uh, were um, studies that had to do with uh, simple rehabilitation interventions, including elastic tube resistive training, um, mindfulness, uh, emotional states associated with the uh, ability of patients to self-manage and other uh, interesting topics. Um, I think just to um, highlight one of these very briefly um, and make note that in the United States, there is a uh, registry. Uh, this is uh, the, the abstract from Chris Garvey and colleagues uh, at UCSF. Uh, that the American Association of Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Rehabilitation has a registry for pulmonary rehabilitation, uh, and we encourage listeners to look into this further. Um, this is a national pulmonary rehab registry that has a secure platform for measuring, reporting, and comparing both individual and aggregate pulmonary rehabilitation outcomes, and that it has a an infrastructure that has um, security features and data integrity um, and um, has firewall services, IT support. There is a, a a fee, a registry fee for programs uh, to participate in the registry, um, but the overall purpose of this registry uh, is to provide an organized platform and support to uh, better nationally uh, document and analyze the impact of pulmonary rehab in community-based um, programs. And so um, I encourage listeners to the podcast uh, to uh, look up this registry and, uh, and consider uh, whether it's appropriate um, for them to um, have their, patient, their, their pulmonary rehabilitation program in the United States uh, involved in that registry. 
Um, there are many uh, other very interesting abstracts from that session, and I'd be happy to uh, mention a couple of others if, if desired, but I just want to briefly also mention the other thematic poster sessions, um, one of which was uh, pulmonary rehabilitation in pulmonary hypertension, interstitial lung disease, and other conditions, what's new. Um, there were a lot of uh, very interesting abstracts in that sessions as well, including some that addressed the advantages of perioperative pulmonary rehab and thoracic surgery, uh, early mobilization of, of patients who are critically ill and on mechanical ventilation, um, pulmonary rehabilitation for individuals with asthma, lymphangioliomyomatosis, and other forms of interstitial lung disease, uh, and uh, issues, some practical issues pertaining to pulmonary rehabilitation for individuals with uh, um, pulmonary hypertension. One uh, of note um, by Marisco and colleagues uh, in regards to pulmonary hypertension um, addressed the topic that functional performance tests uh, used routinely in pulmonary rehabilitation elicit a maximal or near-maximal cardiovascular response in individuals with pulmonary hypertension, uh, and that's important, I think, to know. Uh, and another uh, interesting abstract, small study, but uh, a study uh, actually... Um, looked at the impact, looking at the impact of pulmonary rehab in pulmonary found that there was, uh, at least in a selected group of patients, an improvement in right ventricle function uh, following um, rehabilitation in patients with pulmonary hypertension. Uh, this is certainly a, 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 an important area to investigate further. Uh, and um, there was one um, other study, uh, just to mention that um, individuals uh, with uh, PTSD and anxiety uh, may have um, dif greater difficulty achieving uh, gains in certain outcomes uh, following, following pulmonary rehabilitation. Uh, that was a study by uh, Nicole DeLuca and colleagues um, from uh, Miami, Florida in regards to um, veterans uh, who had participated in, in pulmonary rehab. Um, so again, there are many exciting studies uh, in that session. And the final uh, thematic poster session that we had at the meeting this past year uh, was entitled Walk This Way, an Update on Exercise Tests and Pulmonary Rehabilitation. Um, here there were many abstracts pertaining to various types of tests, including six-minute walk tests, uh, uh, the 200-meter walk test, six-minute step test, and others, um, the relationship of exercise tests to uh, the COPD assessment test, um, the impact of uh, anxiety on cardiopulmonary exercise testing uh, outcomes, um, and um, one uh, very interesting um, abstract from that session that I would just like to highlight briefly is one that looked at clinical socio-demographic and psychological characteristics of participants versus non-participants to pulmonary rehabilitation in individuals with COPD. Uh, and this was really geared towards trying to identify uh, whether there are features uh, that uh, potentially um, could be intervened on to try to foster participation uh, in pulmonary rehabilitation for those who could benefit from it. Um, and this study um, was a case-controlled study uh, by Rivard and colleagues from Montreal, Canada, Canada 
uh, they uh, had a registry of individuals with COPD. Um, the, the, the patients had given their consent to be in this registry uh, that um, had structured interviewing uh, and collected information on a variety of sociodemographic data, health behaviors, uh, and um, other health information, including lung function testing, comorbidities, and medications from their medical records. Uh, and they had 333 COPD patients in that registry, um, of whom 274 had never participated in pulmonary rehab, and 59 had attended at least once, um, and approximately 50%, with 54% were female, the mean age was 69, uh, and they had uh, moderate to severe uh, airflow obstruction. So interestingly, um, the, the finding from this was that of those who had participated in pulmonary rehabilitation compared to those who never had participated. There were fewer active smokers, um, individuals who had participated in pulmonary rehabilitation uh, had more severe airflow obstruction, were more likely uh, to live with a, a spouse or a partner, um, and um, less likely to have low household income. So this study showed that disease severity, the smoking status, the levels of physical activity, um, and sociodemographic characteristics were associated with um, the propensity of individuals to participate in pulmonary rehab or not. Um, the, the hope was that early identification of patients less likely to participate would be important to identifying strategies um, to um, foster participation for those who could benefit. Um, so that's a whirlwind tour through all of these sessions. I'm happy to um, uh, discuss uh, other other topics um, further. Uh, Sally, do you have any um, other abstracts that you'd like to highlight or or bring forward from the sessions? No, I, I think you've you've done a grand job, Carly. I think there was there was a great mix of um, studies, and it was interesting to see that there were some qualitative studies that came through as well. So I think that the methods being applied to uh, develop the field of rehabilitation are widening, which is really encouraging. Yes, I think that's true. I think we have um, issues that 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 range from delving into the the science of um of muscle and muscle dysfunction and uh cardioventilatory limitation and comorbidities and uh understanding individuals on a um on a on a personal level in a way that enables a future era of pulmonary rehabilitation to address personalized medicine um, all the way up to more uh, epidemiologic, uh, sociologic, um, qualitative um, studies that that really look at and address issues of um, access and participation in pulmonary rehabilitation and, and um, the role of education, uh, the role of novel um, forms of rehabilitation to, to play a role um, given the limitation of access to to some of the more traditional methods um, is another area that's, um, you know, yeah. hi hotly being researched. So thank you once again. And uh, 
I'll leave this open question for you both. What would you highlight as the exciting planned sessions and topics for ATS 2017 in Washington, D.C.? Yes, thank you, Fabio. The, um, there are several sessions um, that we are very excited uh, to uh, feature at ATS 2017 in Washington, D.C. Um, we cannot comment yet on the uh, the, the scientific uh, research sessions because uh, the abstract deadline uh, for this submission for this coming year has not yet arrived, and so those sessions uh, have not had a chance to yet be planned. However, uh, I would like to highlight some of the uh, key uh, sessions to be held uh, in regards to um, postgraduate course, uh, two uh, major symposia, uh, a Meet the Professor seminar and a Sunrise seminar that will be presented. Uh, the first to, to highlight is uh, going to be a postgraduate course. This is going to be a didactic session that I think will be of very broad interest um, to any uh, clinicians who are involved in the management of patients with COPD, clinical researchers, as well as pulmonary rehabilitation um, providers. And the title of this course is going to be Practical Outcome Tools in COPD from Clinical Care to Clinical Trials. Uh, the idea underlying this session is that uh, Many different exercise and patient-reported outcome tools are used commonly uh, in patients with COPD, um, but uh, some of them are used or have been used in, in the context of clinical trials, and a purpose of this session is really to um, see, uh, to enable uh, participants to both uh, describe and learn the properties of these exercise and patient-reported outcome tools um, and to learn how uh, not only they perform in a population setting, but how they could be used in clinical practice um, in addition to as part of clinical trials. Um, so this is going to be chaired by uh, Dr. Will Mann uh, from Harefield Hospital uh, in London as well as by Dr. Sally Singh. Um, uh, from Leicester, and this is going to be a very exciting session. It's going to highlight outstanding speakers uh, who will um, present information in regards to several um, uh, tools, including six-minute walk test, shuttle walk test, cycle ergometry, uh, lower limb physical performance measures, uh, a, a, a relative... Um, a discussion of the of the different types of exercise tools in clinical trials. Uh, there will be a session on measuring muscle function and mass, uh, a session on balance measures, physical activity outcome tools, activities of daily living, dyspnea measures, health status measures, anxiety and depression, sleep disturbances, physical activity, hospital ad admissions, biomarkers, uh, and ultimately a, a roundtable discussion. So we're very, very excited about this. I think it will be of broad interest, uh, not just to those those who um, deliver pulmonary rehabilitation, uh, but to a wide audience of, of anybody who um, provides care for individuals with chronic respiratory disease, uh, such as uh, COPD. Uh, 
So we're very excited about that, and we hope for uh, terrific attendance there. Uh, the two symposia that will be presented this coming year at ATS 2017, one of them um, is a session entitled Pulmonary Rehabilitation Across Healthcare Settings. Uh, this is a session that will be chaired by Loe van Vleteren from um, Horn, Netherlands, and Marilyn Moy from um, Boston, Massachusetts. And this uh, is a session that will deal with um, the attempt to individualize rehabilitation interventions to the patient situation. We know that patients uh, with chronic respiratory disease uh, need care across uh, the course of the disease uh, and the severity of the disease as well as across different healthcare venues. And this symposium will um, uh, address topics that uh, pertain to specific patient situations within those uh, different healthcare settings um, to try to optimize the impact and effective implementation of rehabilitation um, by healthcare professionals um, across uh, different patient groups. Uh, and the other uh, symposium that we look forward to um, having on the schedule for the coming year is a Hot Topics in Pulmonary Rehabilitation pro-con debate. Um, these are always fun and exciting, uh, well-received. Uh, this is going to be uh, chaired by Dr. Marilyn Moy from Boston as well as um, by Dr. Uh, William Mann from uh, Harefield, uh, UK, uh, and there will be um, topics, pro-con topics on whether we can versus cannot increase access to pulmonary rehabilitation, uh, pro-con discussion of whether a mortality study is needed to prove efficacy of pulmonary rehabilitation, um, whether a, a debate on whether add-ons should be used in conventional pulmonary rehabilitation, a discussion of whether pulmonary rehabilitation should be or should not be delivered at home, and whether physical activity should or should not be routinely assessed in clinical care. So these are five areas of uh, active controversy in the field of pulmonary rehabilitation, uh, and it should be uh, a very exciting session. In addition to those, there will be a Meet the Professor on the role of e-technology uh, and tele-rehabilitation in the management of chronic uh, lung disease. This will be presented by uh, Anne Holland and Michael Strickland. And there will be a sunrise seminar on assessing and treating sleep disorders in chronic lung disease and the role of pulmonary rehabilitation. And that will be presented by uh, Javi Soler from uh, UCSD in California. Uh, so those, that's a, a, a tempting precursor of ATS uh, 2017. Um, there will be more to come uh, once the scientific uh, abstract submissions have uh, taken place. Well, thank you, Professor Rochester. Thank you, Professor Singh. Thanks a lot for sharing uh, your time, your observations, and your expertise with us. We hope to have the chance to meet you uh, again in uh, ATS 2017 in Washington and to share these experiences with you and colleagues from all over the world. I'd like to remind you also that Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly has a business meeting during the Congress, and this meeting welcomes members and new members involved in pulmonary rehabilitation, and please come and become involved in pulmonary rehabilitation assembly. You're uh, more than welcome. And with these, we finalize this podcast, also thanking the American Thoracic Society and all those who are listening. Hope to see you soon. Thank you, and uh, goodbye.